Amen. Well, how are you guys doing this evening? Justin and I are excited to be with you tonight. We have some fun content, some serious content, but all of it is going to direct us upward. Can somebody say amen for that? Amen. So tonight we're covering chapter 7 in our Chronicles part 2 section. The title is, The God Who Answers by Fire. Our evening is going to consist of the finest of topics, the manifest presence of God, the holiness of God, and the process of his people being made to be like him. We're going to start out this evening reading Colossians 1, 9 through 14, and then we're going to pray in accordance with that verse. Is it okay if we start our study into the scripture with the scripture? You guys like that, right? Colossians 1, 9 through 14 says... For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Before we do these studies, Judah and I seriously pray. We pray first for ourselves. We want to live a life that is worthy of the Lord. We seriously do. I mean, the Lord has done so much for us. We pray that the Lord will show us how to live a life worthy of the Lord. And then we pray for you guys. We want to live a life worthy together with you. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joy. Saints, I love this verse because the specific tensing that it starts out with. Being strengthened. A man that our mighty king hasn't strengthened us just once and then was done with us. He is strengthening us in ongoing empowerment. Ongoing empowerment that's going to continue into this evening. That we might have great endurance, great patience, and great joy. We are excited to see this process at work in us and in you as we cover this teaching. Verse 12 says, giving thanks to the Father. That's our aim tonight. We, we are aiming that you all go home giving thanks to the Lord for what He's doing in this body. Amen. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Say qualified. Qualified. You are qualified. Say that with me. I am qualified. I am qualified. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Man, in this kingdom, the kingdom that we're a part of, we find redemption in our bodies. We find redemption and forgiveness for sins. We find our very nature and our souls being redeemed at every service we go to, every prayer meeting we attend, and tonight's not going to be any different. We're going to see redemption tonight. Amen? Amen. So before we start, we would like to have an anointed man of God, someone who is really serious about getting into the presence of God, someone who is excited about getting into the Word, someone who wants to grow tonight. We want that person to stand up and pray for us. Mighty God, we say we need you tonight, Lord. Lord God, we're asking God that your manifest presence be here with us tonight, mighty God. Lord God, let your word, God, be rooted deep in our hearts. 
Lord God, let us interact with your word. Let us engage with your word, Father. Lord God, let not one person in this room, Lord, leave just at, uh, coming from a Bible study. Lord, we want to be impacted by your word, and we want to be changed by it. Father, we ask that this be no ordinary night. Lord, we ask that your word be open to us, God. Open our minds that we might see the wonderful things in your law. Lord, we love you, Jesus. This is about you, and we want to honor you tonight by the way we dig into your word. Amen. 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 Now that you've prayed for us, Lentonius, Maximus, Law on the Lips, Linton, our faithful reader of the scroll. Please pick up in verse 1 of chapter 7, brother. <laughs> when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. And they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, and all the Israelites were standing. Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord, and there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the fellowship offerings, because the bronze altar he had made could not hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat portions. So Solomon offered the fest- offered the festival at that time for seven days, and all Israel with him. A vast assembly, people from Lebo Hamath to the Wadi of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held an assembly where they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival for seven more days, seven days more. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people Israel. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Come on. Come on. Now my eyes, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me as David your father did, and do all I command, and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them. I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. 
I will make it a byword and an object of an object of ridicule among all people. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they're forsaking the Lord and the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. Man, we've been on an incredible theme in our church recently. The pastors have been teaching you out of 2 Corinthians 7 about godly sorrow. We've been learning about what repentance really is. And tonight, we're going to give you some gems that, that can really supplement that. Tonight, if you are eager, if you are wanting more, I promise you the Lord can give you some things that might change your life tonight. The very first scripture I ever heard the Lord speak to me was Matthew 7 and verse 24. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, uh, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles, heal the sick? And Jesus would tell them, I, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, who, he who practices lawlessness. That was the first thing that the Lord spoke to me. And you know what it caused me to do for the very first time? Repent. Matthew seven thirteen also says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the road that leads to destruction and many find it. The very first time I met the Lord was in repentance. And ever since then, it has been a series of repentance. I have learned the number one thing to growing in the kingdom is repentance and how to repent well. it's, It's very sad that the one thing that most people don't know how to do well is repent. We often focus on preaching well. We often focus on uh, learning to share a scripture well or learning how to witness well. That's not the thing that, that makes you grow in the kingdom. It's repentance. Those who learn to repent the best and the most often are the ones that grow the most. So tonight we're going to teach you some things about repentance that really just come out of our hearts, really come out of our experience and the things that we've been taught by the pastors. And I promise you, you will be blessed if you stay with us. You want to be blessed tonight? Man, you're going to get some good things. But Linton, if you would, reread verse 1, and we're going to dig in. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. My, my, my. Last week we dug in-depth into what God was doing with Solomon as he prayed. There was a kind of interaction that was more than just feeling the presence of God. It was a manifestation that was intended to stay forever. God heard Solomon's prayer, and he has a very specific answer. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering. We want to take a look with you at this very first verse and the nature of God's answer. See, there's all kinds of promises and all kinds of requests in the Bible, but you learn something very specific about how God feels about it, depending upon how he answers the question. (laughs) When God wants to make a point, he does it in a very specific way. Who wants to take some scriptures? Paul Rosales, Genesis 15, 17 through 21. Paul Makowitz, Exodus 3, 2. Leslie, Exodus 19, 18 through 19. Jackie, Leviticus 9, 23 through 24. Cody, Numbers 9, 15 through 17. Steve Thomas, Deuteronomy 4, 11 through 13. That's in the law, and we're going to hand out some Nevi'im afterwards. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to dig in and look at passages pertaining to how God institutes things and how he answers people. And we're going to start where? In the Torah. So who's got Genesis 15, verse 17 through 21? When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergeshites, and Jebusites. Man, he speaks to Abraham in the very beginning, and he tells him he's going to take this land full of giants, departed spirits, and all kinds of wicked things. But how does God prove? If anybody remembers this story, what did Abraham ask before this? What sign will you show me that this will come to pass? Then Abram falls asleep, and what happens when he's asleep? A smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appears. Abraham wasn't involved in one bit. He fell asleep, and yet God showed him that he was serious about that covenant by fire. God sent fire, and from the inception of the very first covenant to the people, to Abram, the very first covenant, we see that it, it was instituted by God acting and answering with fire. Who's got Exodus 3.2? Come on, saints. These concepts are going to build upon each other. We're going to pick up a pace as we go through it. Are you with me? Yes. So Abraham, in the initiation of the covenant, fire is God's sign that he has established it. Then Moses, the man who's going to lead God's people out of Egypt to that promised land, the sign is fire. And something was being sustained supernaturally in that fire. God makes his covenant known by blazing fire. He does it over and over again, and we're going to walk through some of the most notable instances. But I want you to hold on to the most notable men that caused Israel to come into being are the father of the faithful that is the progenitor of the race, and then the one man that led them out and caused them to become a nation by God's direction. Hey, who has Exodus 19, 18 through 19? Because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke the voice of God, and the voice of God answered. So we've seen earlier that the inception of the covenant began with fire. The appearance to the first corporate national leader, Moses, was a burning bush, fire. Now we're seeing that the appearance to the whole nation for the first time the appearance to the entire nation. What did they see? Fire. Fire. Fire is how God speaks to his people. What's Leviticus 9, verse 23 through 24? Come on. Moses, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Oh, come on. The fire was used to affirm the very priesthood. Yeah. Does it feel good when God affirms you? Yes. When he says that you're mine? Yes. 
Of course, that very same fire also consumed those priests for not rightly relating to the covenant that was established by fire. See, God's fire is an impartial thing. It doesn't belong to anyone. It's not based upon status. It's not based upon your previous relationship with the Lord. It is what it is because it's God's immutable character. It is affirmation when we're standing in right order with it. And it's also judgment when we stray. Hey, who has Numbers 9, 15? On the day of the tabernacle, the tent of testimony was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Man, every movement of the nation was led and confirmed by fire. Every direction that he wanted the people to go, there was fire pointing them in the direction they needed to go. Imagine being there during that. You're asking the Lord, which direction do I go in my life? I don't know which direction to go. I don't know what step to take. Well, you have to see where the fire of God is leading you to go in that direction. But that's also a dangerous thing. Because if they moved without the fire, it would be their judgment. Man, those that didn't stay by the fire, they got waylaid by the Amalekites. We have to stick close to the fire of God in our lives. Otherwise, it will come against us. Who's got Deuteronomy 4, 11 through 13? You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire in the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words and the song of form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. Oh, come on now. Last week Solomon asked a question. Will you really dwell on earth with man? He was asking, how is it possible that this glorious, holy God could dwell on earth with men and women that are unholy? See, these people saw something in the distance. They could see fire ablaze on top of a mountain that represented God, that was establishing something. That was much like what happened with the patriarchs, what happened with Moses. But they could only see a form. They could hear him speaking out of the fire. There was only a voice. Something was between them and where the voice was coming from. They were unable to approach the mountain. They were unable to come all the way up onto it. They could see the fire from a distance, and it was speaking a message that God was here. But there was a distance between them. There was something that had to be closed that Solomon recognized last week when we went over this. The fire of God is something that we must learn to relate to properly. We told you we're going to hand out a few scriptures in the Nevi'im. It's going to warn our soul. It will show us how to rightly see God. Judges 6 to Pat. 1 Kings 18, uh, 6, 20 through 21, brother. 1 Kings 18, 23 through 24, Emmy. 2 Kings 1, 10, Rob. 2 Kings 6, 17, Brandon. Isaiah 4, 4 through 6, Abambola. Jeremiah 29, Nick Rosales. Jeremiah 23, 29, Hayes. Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28, Nolan. Zechariah 2, 5, Assad. Malachi 3, 2 through 4, Daniel Cho. Pick up when you get there. Judges 6, 20 and 21. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread. Place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire fled from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. 
And the angel of the Lord disappeared. You remember the story. Gideon's asking the angel of the Lord, how do I really know what you're saying is true? Let me set out a fleece. Let me do this thing so that you can prove what you're saying is true. Nobody's ever had a conversation with God like that, right? (laughs) But listen, even after the fleece, there's a situation here where the angel of the Lord gives him another sign. And what's that sign? Fire. Fire. Even when interacting with the angel of the Lord, fire was where the answer was derived. (laughs) Gideon could know that this was really God speaking, that this really was the will of the Lord because fire came and consumed the sacrifice. Man, he knew his Torah, sounds like. Sounds like Gideon knew that the pattern of God confirming his promises was always by fire. It's no different from us. God always will confirm the promise he's given to you by fire. You will feel the fire of God anointing what he's speaking to you. You will feel the fire of God driving you along. He always answers with fire. Oh, come on now. What's 1 Kings 18? Before we go there, I don't think you guys quite got this. We have an angel that is standing in front of a man, and he does not believe until something happens, and that answer was fire. But it's more than that. It's not an angel. It is the, somebody say the, the angel of the Lord. Out of all of the myriads in our celestial realms and all the teachings that we've been doing, there is a singular angel that represents God in this way. That angel, the one that speaks for the Lord, the only angel that can receive worship from men because he is a representation of God, is standing before Gideon. And what did he need to see to understand that it was the Lord? Fire. All right, who's got first kings? 18, 23 through 24. All right, I'm going to read it. two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves, and let them cut it into pieces, and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. <laughs> Saints, from the inception of the prophets, fire has been an indicator of who actually dwelt with the Lord. Consider that we're sitting in a setting that is mostly reprobate. That we're among people who have an awareness of the power of God, but do not actually possess it. The own prophet is standing here saying, I'm going to set up something here, guys. This counterfeit church, this counterfeit religion, says that they have God's favor. That they have what they need. That God is with them. You want to know the difference? We'll see whose God answers by fire tonight. Saints, in your own lives, I want you to be able to tell the difference between what is true religion and what is a counterfeit. We're going to have to get with the Nevi'im, with the prophets, and understand what the real fire of God is in this house. Hey, who has 2 Kings 1? Hey, how do you know that there's a prophet amongst us? Because fire always shows up. Fire is the proof that someone is standing in the gap for God. Fire is the proof that someone is being led by the Lord. Not just the fire of, you know, someone stands up and preaches a charismatic message. Also, this this is the fire of judgment. Mm -hmm. Most of the time... When someone who is really anointed by the Lord, you can feel it because fire is consuming them. 
You might feel a little judged around them. It's because they're full of the fire of God. You might feel a little bit encouraged because the fire of God is emanating from them. This is not just charismatic junk. And you know what I'm talking about. Sitting at an altar at a youth group meeting saying, Lord, I want more fire. What they're really talking about is, Lord, I just want to feel something inside of me. That is a bunch of charismatic garbage. The true fire of God is the proof that you are walking in holiness and that you can speak for God. And it doesn't just mean a warm, fuzzy feeling. It could mean judgment for others. It is a full out blazing type of fire that can only come from the Lord. Come on. He's got 2 Kings 6, 17 and read verse 18 as well, but you're going to get interrupted in between. Oh, come on now. The guy who's with the prophet, the guy who's being discipled, if you will, who's carrying or caravanning around with those that are holy men. He doesn't believe and he can't see what they see. Saints, I know none of you have ever been standing next to your pastor or standing next to a strong brother and you just couldn't quite see it yet. Yeah, I've been there. Listen, we're very hard on this servant, and rightly so. But I want you to notice that when he does not believe what he does not see, God allows him to see the fire that was already around him. It's not just that there were chariots and horsemen. It's that there were chariots and horsemen that represent God's manifest presence, his initiation, his protection, and most importantly, his judgment for the enemies of Elijah in this case. Depends on what side of the fire you're on. The Psalms even speak about him making his servants flames of fire. Why? Because they do his bidding and his will. Hey, what's verse 18? As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Oh, man. When you refuse to see the fire of God, refuse to see the judgment that is pending right in front of you, it's all around you, but you're just unable to see it because of your sin. God will strike you blind where you permanently cannot see in this life or in the next. Oh, to be the one that cries out, Lord, I don't see. I need help. Cause me to see. Help me in my unbelief, Father. He answers those kinds of prayers. Who has Isaiah 4? I know when you read this verse, you think about cigars and vapes, but I want you to think about something else tonight. When you're thinking about this fire, you're seeing the fire of the Lord assembling over a city that is very sinful and about to be destroyed. And there's a couple things this fire is doing. This fire is protecting the city, but this fire is also refining by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. This, this fire is doing two things. This is the fiery holiness of God, and it's meant to protect 
and distinguish the obedient. But to the disobedient, it is the embodied wrath of God. When we hear about fire, when we hear about hellfire preaching, it is the judgment upon sinners and it is the wrath of God. But also, fire shows up in the Word as a protection from the Lord. Come on, your holiness is a protection from the wrath of God. The holiness that God is burning into your soul forms a protection for you. You know what this reminds us of? Matthew 3.12, I want to read it. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his weed into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He is both gathering up wheat to store it in a barn, but he, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. When you are thinking about this, teachings like reward and recompense ought to come to your mind. Anytime fire is on the scene, it is an answer where God's favor lies. It, it, it is an answer to the, from the Lord, but it is signifying judgment and Amen. protection. You've got Jeremiah 20, verse 9. Oh, come on, saints. So many songs written about fire fall down, fire fall down. The reality is that it will. You just need to know that's actually what you want. Listen, Jeremiah gives us an answer as to how to place ourselves, to position our lives to want the fire of God to fall. Jeremiah has the word and the spirit of God so bound up inside of him that the fire is filling his very bones. He can feel it. It's not out on the distance. It's not on Mount Sinai for him anymore. It's in his mouth. This is so much like the Urim and the Thummim that the priest carried around. It's something of God's decisions, something of God's judgments that are supposed to be carried near the heart, near the nefesh, the soul, inside of your body. And it's bound up in this man of God because he has the word and he has the spirit. Hey, who adds Jeremiah 23, 29? Just a few chapters later. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Man, is not my word like fire, says the Lord. You know, all throughout the Bible, you get the impression that the Spirit of God is fire. That the Spirit shows up in fire. In Jeremiah, you see that the Word of God is fire. Earlier we said, hey, what direction do you take in your life? Will you go where the fire of God is leading you? Well, what is the fire of God? It starts with the word being planted in your heart and burning up what is inside. The word of God is absolutely like a fire. And the more that you get inside yourself, the more you can say like Jeremiah, it's shut up in my bones, but I have to let it out. I have got to release it because it's burning up inside me. The word of God is like a fire. Can you say I'm into that? Hey, Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. Above the expanse over their heads was what High above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. Mm. And that from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant lights surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. Are you saying starting to get the imagery that God wants you to see? Yeah. His throne room, his answers are surrounded by a certain kind of imagery. The fire of God dwells in him. It's not just around him. He's filled with it. He's clothed with it. Ezekiel is a prophet. And like most prophets, 
The man hears from God and also looks through a dimly lit glass. He sees one like the Son of Man. He doesn't have a clear picture. But what he does know is that the throne of God is marked here because of the fire that is surrounding it. He knows what happened at Sinai. He knows what happens in 2 Chronicles 7. That God's presence is residing here and I'm seeing something that is more than just earthly things. Saints, when we get a picture that is just more than earthly things, when we begin to see in the heavens and understand God's fire, it has an effect on the earth, first and foremost in us and our families. Hey, who has Zechariah 2? By now you should see that this is a wall of fire that means approval by the Lord. The Lord is protecting the city and this wall of fire is approval for the people inside. He's protecting them from the enemies. But what does it mean to those outside? It means you come close, you're going to get burned. You come close to my people and you're going to have to suffer this. It is approval. It's judgment. It's refining the people inside and it's distinguishing them. From everyone outside. Oh, it on, is man. the fire of God that indicates these things. Malachi 3, 2 through 4. Alright, pause. We're going to do this a bunch in this passage. Say that one more time for me loud, please, Joe. But who can endure the day of his coming? That's a really good question. It depends upon your relationship to God's fire. Yeah. Keep reading. All right, pause again for me. How were the Levites established? Fire. Fire from God fell that marked the covenant that he had made with them. He spoke it earlier. It was true the moment he said it, but God establishes it and makes it known by fire. Now in reference to the exact same Levites, the same order that he himself established, his fire is doing something else here. Keep reading. Oh, come on, saints. That fire of God not only will establish you, it will no lo- not only birth you as a new creation, it is what refines His priesthood. The Lord will have men. It's not a question. It's not a debate. He's saying, I will have men who can offer right sacrifices in my house. Now some, they don't, resp- they don't survive that refining. Who can stand? Who will survive? But those that want to be refined, that are longing to offer right sacrifices, find mercy at the seat of God. They find mercy in His flames. Those who desire to be like the Lord will find that He will enable you to offer an acceptable sacrifice before Him. Saints, you remember our discussion earlier in Genesis. What was special about Abraham's covenant? Anybody know it? Got a couple in the room that got it. The man was taking a nap. I know how some of you love your naps. I'm not a fan of them. (laughs) But Abraham was taking a nap while God was establishing a covenant. What about that was based upon Abraham's success? God made a covenant with a very specific man and a very specific people in a specific nation. Even down to the Levites, there are some that do not survive refining. It's a bloody process. But he will have... His promise fulfilled. He will have his Levites to stand before him day and night, able to offer right sacrifices, able to 
stand between God and man. God is promising that he will redefine in his refining, that he will change the way that they have previously ever related to him, and he's going to make them a holy people. He will make them a people that is righteous and able to stand before him. Can somebody say amen that he will do that to us? Amen. We've been grafted into a holy promise. And if we stand as faithful men, as faithful priests, he will make us acceptable. Amen. Who wants to look at the Ketuvim? Yeah. You want to learn how to walk it out? Yeah. You just want to hear lofty ideas or do you want to know what to do? I know what to do. Yes, All right, let's hand up. Out. Rob, you get 1 Chronicles 21, 26. Uh, Hayes. You get 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. And then, uh, Nolan, you're going to get Acts 2, 1 through 4. And Chris, you're going to get Deuteronomy 4, 23 through 24. 1 Chronicles 21, 26. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings to the village of He called on the Lord. Man, how did David know that his offering was accepted? David was such a good Bible student. He had the Torah. He had the Nevi'im. He studied them. And when that fire fell, that was an indicator to him that his offering was accepted. Now think of how special that is. Because David was not in a good condition, wasn't he? Come on, you can answer. I've been that long. No. What's going on in his life? David had done some serious things. He did some bad stuff with Bathsheba. He killed her husband. He's facing the consequences of that over and over in his life. You know what it's like to face consequences, don't you? Yes. Man, does yes. it feel like God's going to answer your prayer? No. Not really. He had just taken a census that God said should never be taken. And he was in this position. He still pays, he still pays full price. He still repents in such a way that it brought the fire of the Lord to confirm His offering. Man, it doesn't depend on what you bring. It doesn't depend on exactly how perfect you're getting it right. What depends on whether or not you're willing to repent, get it right, and the fire of God will fall on your circumstance. The fire of God is the proof. How do I know that the Lord is, is accepting what I'm doing? Do you see the fire of God in it or not? Do you feel the fire of God moving in it or not? Do you feel the fire of God driving you along to the next very act of obedience? That is how David knew that the Lord did this. And out of that very spot, he told his son Solomon to build the temple. That's amazing, isn't it? Fire was the start of that. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. All right, you're going to pause. What is our fire? It's an answer from God. It is the word of God. It is the spirit of God. It is him refining, cleansing, and making things holy. And it is also his judgment to those that will not respond to it. We told you that God was going to answer Solomon's prayer. Well, this is his answer. And it's not a letter. It's not a note. It wasn't a message in a bottle. He came down in the same way that he had so many other times. Keep reading a few more verses, and we're going to connect a couple dots. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, 
They knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His love endures forever. All right, saints. Does it make a little more sense why they're kneeling down? They're not just scared because it's a flamethrower. It is the embodied judgment of God. Now, I want to draw to your mind with Moses. We talked to you a little bit about him earlier. Leviticus 9.24 says that the tabernacle, at the establishment of it, God answered with fire there as well. Moses is the man who orchestrated the tabernacle. He saw the plans in the heavenlies and then came and brought it to the people and they built something on the earth that God affirmed with fire from heaven. David, 1 Chronicles 21, which we just looked at, as the builder of David's tent, the one who transported the ark, who gave us that time frame between that we are currently living in right now, where the tabernacle has existed and it still exists, but we are longing to get all the way to the permanent dwelling. You know what God did? He answered that with fire as well. Now Solomon here, where we just read, the builder of the temple, the one who has the plans and is carrying it out upon the earth, God answers with fire. Every one of these buildings, every one of these structures that represents parts of our lives, parts of our salvation, God's singular answer for affirmation, singular answer for protection, singular answer for His judgment has always been fire and it always will be fire. He dwells in it. He is surrounded by it. Nothing about our God is tame. He is good. And His love does endure forever. All right, say this with me. Builder of the tabernacle. God answered him with fire. Builder of the tent of David. God answered him with fire. The builder of the temple. God answered with fire. You see these three places where something was built... And God answered it by filling it with fire. Would you like to see something else that was built and God answering with fire? Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Man, come on. Imagine being one of those Jews coming from all over the world and seeing this. It would have been no mistake that God is building something here and he's filling it with fire. Now, when you think about 2 Chronicles 5.12, there are 120 musicians there and they are ready for the temple to fall with fire. Hey, how many are there in Acts 1? 120. Think about the similarities with Sinai. Fire coming down, hearing the voice, the word of God being uh, declared boldly. You see that also in Acts, don't you? God fills with fire that which he shikans in. Man, he he wants to shikan inside the body. So he wants to shikan inside the church. So the very first thing he does is fills it with fire. Some of us really question when we are getting right with the Lord. How do I know that I'm being approved? How do I know that I'm doing the right thing? We go to Matt and Wade and want to talk about it for a while. And man, I just need some approval. We want to go find 10 scriptures and find some approval in it. But I'll tell you what, when you see fire falling from heaven, you don't doubt for a second, do you? When you come down to this altar and you feel the fire of God burning in you, there's no way to doubt it. When these men are seeing this, when they are knowing what has happened in the other three buildings, 
There is no doubt that God is about to shikan in this new building called the church. They are being refined by the fire. They are being accepted by the fire. Come the on. fire is an acceptance in that church. They are his dwelling. And guess what the sign of that fire was? Speaking in tongues, man. They were speaking in tongues, and that's how they saw the fire of God resting on them. Amen. This is the sign of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is how a holy God dwells with unholy people. We asked that question last week. How does God do it? I mean, in the Proverbs, it says it's an abomination to him to call a guilty man innocent. Well, how does he dwell with you? He fills you with fire and he burns out everything that doesn't belong. Amen. That's how he does it. Amen. He makes you holy. He refines you and he sets you apart. Amen. That is what the fire of God does in our midst, church. We should be asking for more of it. Yeah. Yeah. Deuteronomy 4, 23 through 24 is something special. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. And make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything he has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Sounds a little scary, doesn't it? It does. It should. Yeah. How can a holy God dwell with unholy people? We said that last week and Justin just said it. He does it right here. Yeah. He does it right now in this very room. He does it by filling you with a holy fire that is not of you, that is not earthly, that is not dirt born, but was born of heaven. He does it by filling men and women like you with something that is more than you ever possessed or ever have. And as we respond to it, it transforms who we are. Saints, he's a jealous God. He's not the kind of God that shares. He's the kind of God that wants all of you, every bit of you. He wants to walk in you and have his being in you, through you. Listen, you want to know when repentance is real? It's going to look like what the pastors are teaching about and you're going to have a fire for holiness that is not manufactured by one of us. That is not going to come from our preaching. When you're alone by yourself, when you're surrounded by a crowd of unbelievers, that fire will not be able to be quenched because it will be born from heaven inside of you. I want to warn you, it's entirely possible to be spirit-filled and yet not have the fire of God burning in you. You have a sequestered little piece of His presence that is a token that was never where he wanted to stop. His intention was always that he might consume you to the place where you might be able to dwell with him. Do you on. want to dwell with him? Yes. We want Good you word. to dwell with him in this house. Brother Linton, law on the lips, Linton. Will you help us out with verse 2? The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. One more time for me. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord Listen, verse 1 says that fire came down from heaven. It had a manifestation. It wasn't just something that they saw. It filled the temple. And it interacted with them. They could no longer just keep doing what they have always done. You understand where we're going with this? When you really have that fire of God dwelling, it's not possible just to go about business as usual. The things that you wasted your time and your life on, it's not possible to continue doing it. It's not possible to say that you have it and continue as business as usual. Listen, more importantly here, we want to draw to your attention that this is a sign from heaven, but it's also God and his heavenly counsel stating that they've made a decision that heaven and earth are united on. Let every matter be established by two or more witnesses. 
Heaven and the earth are saying that here in this place, in this house, I am going to do something new. I'm going to do something that is permanent. I'm going to do something that is holy, that is everlasting. That most importantly for us, gives us the ability to be refined. That gives us an everlasting covenant that says things do not have to be as they have always been. Have you had a moment in your life that was that way? It's time for us to walk in it in its fullness. In Sinai, a few got to go up there. Others got to see it from a distance. Here the people are surrounding it, gathered all around it. They're all getting to experience it. And by the time we get to Acts 2, it lives inside of them. It's a witness of heaven and earth that is progressing, that is growing. Brother Linton, read verse 3 for us. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, and love endures forever. Man, this is the response to the refining fire coming down. I don't know about you, but if you were there, if I was there, I might be tempted to go, ah! I mean, fire is the bronze altar. I need to find it now. Fire coming from heaven and filling the temple. And the response is kneeling on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Now, I don't know what your concept of worship is, but to me, when I worship the Lord, I am thinking of Him like an all-consuming fire. I am thinking of Him and His mighty acts, and it causes me to worship Him and give thanks that He hasn't burned me, and by saying He's good. His love endures forever. And you know where that comes from? That comes from a response from men that want to be made holy. The fire didn't cause them to run away. The fire didn't cause them to to kind of wimp out. They saw the fire and their response was, He is good. His love endures forever. Amen. You know, that reminds me of a couple passages. We just want to read them to you. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 12 says this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Oh, come on. But worldly sorrow brings death. It's not easy to see the worldly sorrow in you, but you definitely know you have it when you feel the death working inside of you. Mm-hmm. We oftentimes don't realize it, but we do know when we have godly sorrow because there's indicators. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Godly sorrow is a desire for holiness. We're equating those things together. A godly sorrow, first and foremost, is a desire for holiness. What that desire for holiness causes in you is acting out the things you have to do to get that holiness. What a worldly sorrow is, is really just you not wanting to be ashamed in front of people. A godly sorrow is a desire for holiness. And it actually produces something within us, inside of us, and without us. All right, we want to note those men's response to the fire of God, but we have to start with how did they get there? They had a desire for holiness, first and foremost. Isaiah 33, 14 through 16. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. And the fear of God would grip the church. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell 
with everlasting burning. He who walks righteously and speaks what is right, who rejects gain from extortion and keeps his hands from accepting bribes, who stouts his ears against plots of murder and shuts his eyes against contemplating evil. This is the man who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. His bread will be supplied and water will not fail him. Those that are afraid to be refined tremble at the idea of being exposed to the heat. Those that are longing to be with their God with eagerness, earnestness and eagerness rush in to what will refine them. Those that have godly sorrow that produces right action can dwell with the consuming fire. Those that do not have blame shifting, self-defense or self-indignation have fear of the fire. Listen, when we are holy, when we are righteous, when we are running to the one who will transform us, we have no reason to fear the flames. This is intended to produce a heart that simply praises him and thanks him for his goodness. Listen, a trained response to say thank you is not the same thing. We're not heard because of our many words. It's almost like Jesus spoke about this. The precision of your prayer, as some like to say it, the detail in which you pray about a subject or various subjects that might be an issue is not going to help you. The fervency or the eloquence at which you pray is not going to help you. The soul that is rent before the living God saying, you are good. Your love endures forever. And it's actually a true expression of your heart and it is not any more complicated than that. That is the soul that he can refine. That is the soul that can be proved holy and brought in to dwell with him. So often we get caught up in the way that we do things. The intricacies of how we approach the Lord. When in reality, when you see his holy fire, when you see his holy presence, those who are right say very little, but do very much and have much that happens inside of their soul. Solomon had an answer come from heaven here. And he and the entire people, when they saw the reality of what they had been told about, what their fathers had heard, what they had read about, they were brought to their knees and simple words came from their mouth. Oh, that we would see the reality of what we have heard about. What we have said is true, that we might actually be intimate with God enough to be that simple before him and obey what he says. Our God is one who will refine those who come to him. Brother Linton, Four through six for us. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites with the Lord's musical instruments. Oh, wait, the whose musical instruments? The Lord's The Lord's musical instruments? You mean to tell me they didn't belong to the musicians? Interesting. Keep reading, brother. Which King David had made for the praising, for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, and all the Israelites were standing. Man, they were carrying the Lord's musical instruments. Well, what does that even mean? I mean, does the Lord play the guitar on his time off, and then he just let somebody borrow it? These musical instruments belong to the Lord because David provided them for the Lord. And they belong to him. And these these people, these Levites, are playing with the Lord's instruments. Man, the instruments that you have, the tools that God has put in your hand are not yours. 
They don't belong to you. But you say, man, I'm working for God. I'm in the temple. I'm in His temple. You know, I'm, I'm living for Him. He told me to stand here and play. It must belong to me. No. You don't have anything that He didn't loan to you. It is still His, and it is used under His discretion. You may think, I worked at this job. It's my money. Not quite. Who gave you the health to get up and go to that job? You get that principle wrong enough, and the Lord will ensure that you won't be able to go to that job. I promise you. Justin, are you telling me that it's possible that you have a tool that God has given you? That you're in the place that God has called you to be, and your self-righteous actions are still hindering God's ability to take glory from it? My, my, the tools that we think are ours, the giftings that we think are ours, that are only to be used at the Lord's discretion, with the attitude of holiness that God intended it to be used, with his fire burning alive in them. Man, there are so many items in our life, so many different things that we think, ah, the Lord gave this to me for my calling. Yeah, no, he gave it to you on retainer, and he expects you to put it back where it goes when you're done with it. Listen, Justin and I were joking around earlier thinking about a song that he's going to sing just a little bit of to you because I committed him to it. Well, I don't know about all that. Some of you 80s music fans, you remember any way you want it, that's the way you need it. I'm going to tell you that is the wrong journey to be on. The journey that you need to be on is saying that I have a calling from the Lord. That came from Him. The Lord spoke to me. That came from Him. I wouldn't be here if He didn't speak to me. And everything He's given me along the journey was given by Him. Hey, what's Psalm 119 verse 161 say, Judah? Rulers persecute me without cause, but my heart trembles at your word. Come on, saints. Circumstances do not define a man of God. They do not define our actions. Our tools do not define our actions. Our placement in history does not. When we tremble at his word, which is his fire, that defines how we act. Whether you're standing in the temple or you're standing in Samaria, when you tremble at his word, it is a holy offering. Verse 162, I rejoice in your promise like one who finds great spoil. Man, the man who has taken hold of the promise of God has found great spoil. That is better than any spoil that you can get for yourself. Anybody sitting in here with a promise from God? Oh, come on. Is that all there is? We're going to just pretend that didn't happen. We're going to ask it one more time. Anybody in this room have a promise from God? I don't know about you. I got some very personal promises. And to me, that is better than any spoil I can get for myself. But you know what's true also? The one who makes men holy, God, he has found great treasure in you by giving you a promise. You are his great treasure because he's given you his promises. Verse 163, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Listen, the holiness of God will cause you to hate every form of vanity, pride, and self-exaltation. But his love is a purifying fire. It will cause you to hate what is wicked in your own soul and become more. When you don't realize the degree to which you're sinning in an area, the reality is you need to learn to love the fire of God more. The reason you haven't seen it all of this time is because you were not close enough to the fire of God. That's not just for you. That's for us. We're working through this too, but it is the reality of the text. Verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous laws. Man, seven times a day I rejoice in the fire of God. 
Seven times a day I rejoice in the purifying work of God in my life. Seven times a day I, I rejoice in the purging work in me, the force that is purging out things that don't belong. Why rejoice seven times a day? I mean, does anybody really do that? Why rejoice seven times a day? Because His fire should be at work in you at least that much during the day. Amen. His fire should be at work in you seven times at least a day. Yeah. That is the purifying factor. Jesus, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Yeah. Seven times a day. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know what you're thanking Him for. The seven times a day is the law of God that is a burning fire in your soul, removing things that should not exist. Yes, we want you to do that. We would want to do that. And we are working at it. But the things we say we're rejoicing for, our awareness of what that really means for you has got to increase. If you're really trying to get right what to thank him for, the very first place to start is thank you for not burning me in the fire of judgment. I mean, is anybody in here saved from the fire of judgment? We could at least... I mean, Romans says in verse 1, they did not thank him or acknowledge him. Man, we've got something to thank him for, don't we? At least he didn't burn us. We're still here. You know, on that note, Matthew 18, 21 says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times, he asked. Sounds like a reasonable number to me. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times times it's almost as if god expects the fire that is at work in you to cause you to have an overwhelming forgiveness for your brothers yeah you really think that he is sparing your life tolerating your life working with you and he's going to accept that you have contempt for someone on your left or right that is a son of god yeah that's not true we're not going to be that way in this house huh listen we are the tool as well as the one using the tool God gives us things that are for his purposes, but the priests, the Levites, us who are called in Christ Jesus, we are an instrument in the hand of God, and he has the right to refine us as he sees fit, even seven times a day. So when the things crop into your mind that are like, Lord, I thought you would use me differently than this, or I thought it would be faster than this, you're a tool in his hand that he's allowed to refine as much as he would like to. So let's not be the clay looking at the potter saying, I don't appreciate the way that you're molding me. Lord, I thought I I was doing it right. I was in your temple. I was speaking about your scripture, Lord. I thought I was doing it right. Yeah, you're his instrument. Seven times a day he can refine you with his fire until you are actually holy before him. Lord, I'm constantly being corrected. Yeah, that's the point. So that you can be made holy and dwell with him. Because otherwise you ain't going to make it. So I as one man, one people together, let's say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Verse 7, brother. Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord. And there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the fellowship offerings because the bronze altar he had made could not hold the burnt offerings, the grain offerings and the fat portions. So Solomon observed the festival at that time for seven days and all Israel with him, a vast assembly. Man, the refining fire has fallen. God has answered by fire. Yeah, yes. And who was there to witness it? All Israel, Labo, Hamath, which, by the way, is in Assyria, and Egypt. Do you know anything about those three countries that's peculiar? Let's hand out a few scriptures. Um, mm, this got to be right. Nick Eregin. 
Yeah, Nick Arizina, you get Isaiah 19, verse 23 through 25. And um, Ibrahim, you get Zechariah 14, <laughs> verse 17 through 19. Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt, and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Man, there's those patterns again. What we've been learning over and over is that biblical prophecy is not a, like a guided map where we can get out our little lasers and we can get out our, our little uh, compasses and try to trace out from point A to B. Biblical prophecy is like a circular pattern that revolves over and over. Like those wheels on a train, they're circling and circling till they finally get to the destination. You see this pattern happen many times in the Word. What's interesting is Isaiah came a very long time after Solomon. He came after Solomon, but he foresaw that there was a day coming like what happened in the first temple. Where all Israel's together, where the Gentiles from Assyria, where the Gentiles from Egypt are together, the fire of God is falling. The priests are being consecrated, and they are all there together. Hey, you know who came after Isaiah? Zechariah. Who's got that passage? Oh, Eben does. All right, all right. What place would they have to go up to? Jerusalem. All right, we're just checking. Keep going. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. Oh. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nation that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. Saints, there's a day coming that Zechariah prophesied about that all nations would come to Jerusalem, that God would answer by fire. And there would be affirmation, refinement, and judgment that they would have a choice to make. For those of us that, on a personal level, are longing to see salvation in the Middle East, the way and the only way that that is going to come is by being a demonstration of God's fire and God's holiness. In this room, for us to see the nations, to see men and women stream to God, it is going to come from a greater level of personal fire and personal holiness. Zechariah, who came after Solomon and Isaiah, is describing an event that is much like what we're reading about here in Chronicles, except it's going to be the last time that it happens this way. The nations that know that he is their God and their God alone will experience the refinement that they need to dwell with him, to stand as holy, to be one with the king of kings. Now think about that for a second. Whenever the fire of God falls on the nation of Israel, that's when they know that he is God. And that's also when the nations know that the God of Israel is God. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The whole nation, Israel, was caught ablaze with the holy fire of God. But it started with one man. What was that one man's name? Abraham. Abraham. It started with Abraham. He was caught ablaze with the fire of God. Then it affected the family of Abraham. Then the nation of Abraham. 
The Israelites were caught ablaze. That is one life, one family, one nation. That is how, who wants to win the nations in here? I do. That is how we will win the nation. When one life gets set ablaze, then one family will get set ablaze. You can't control a fire that, that is consuming, that is all-consuming. You can't control it. When someone is truly set ablaze with that all-consuming fire, when the all-consuming jealous God dwells inside of you, you can't control it. It'll start to spill over in your family. But I just and want them to feel comfortable, Justin. <laughs> well, then you don't want them to win the nations for Jesus Christ. Because once a family gets ablaze with the fire of God, it starts to set a nation on fire. Come on. Man, set yourself on fire and the world will come and watch you burn. Don't be so concerned with how well you can teach. Although we're getting better at it, right? I don't know, Judah, are we getting better at it? I hope we are. But don't be so concerned whether you look right all the time. Don't don't be so concerned if there's an issue in your family and someone someone notices it and comes to correct you. Don't be concerned about it. All you got to do is set yourself on fire. And people will come to watch you burn. You don't have to have the right gospel presentation. Oftentimes, you know, I have stumbled into conversations that didn't quite go well. I have stumbled into conversations where I didn't lay out every point accurately. But you know what people saw? They saw the fire of God in my eyes and it touched them in some way. They could tell that there was something different. Man, young man, get yourself on fire and people start to notice. You want to change the nations for Jesus? Set yourself on fire Amen. tonight. And they will come and watch. That is a good word, isn't it? Yeah. Man, that's what we should be concerned with tonight. Do I have the fire of God in me? Or can I use a little more? Sometimes we've got to have the gasoline poured on us. And then we just got to light the match of repentance and be set ablaze with the Holy Ghost. And I'm telling you, it's noticeable. You can tell when people are faking it. You can tell when people are just trying to sit in and sit in with the crowd, trying to speak the same language, but you can always tell when there's an authentic fire in someone's heart. You can always tell that. I've seen men in this room who have caught a blaze with the fire of God, and they don't need to have a projector screen to let everyone know. They don't need to have time behind the pulpit. You can just tell. That's what we're after tonight. Linton, would you get into verse 9 through 10? On the eighth day, they held an assembly where they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival for seven days more. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart, for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people. All right, there's a few things we're going to pick up out of these passages. First, in verse 10, I want you to notice, the 23rd day, somebody say 23? 23. 23. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes, joyful and glad in heart for the good things that the Lord had done. We have a slide for you that we want to show you. So we have the months of the year here on the screen. Everybody see the column on the left that says old? We got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and so on. Looks very normal, right? Then you see the column on the right? Seven, eight, nine, ten. Is that how numbers usually work? There's a reason for this. There's a very specific event that's happening now in Israel. And they said it's on the seventh month. We're going to hand out a couple passages to work on this together. What's the first month of the Israeli calendar? If you just look at that, which one is it? Well, I see there's a, a, a couple of answers I'm getting. 
We want to show you exactly what month is happening in Solomon's time and what's going on. You want to see that? Yes. All right, everybody, let's do this. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 12, verse 1 through 3. This is going to be quick, but you need to know this. We're going to keep this slide on the screen so that you can look at it as we talk. Everybody there, say fire when you're there. Fire! Say fuego when you're there. Fuego! All right. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This happened in the month of Nisan. Can anyone guess the backdrop to Exodus 12? The Exodus, the Passover. This is about Passover, and Passover is always, say always, always, always in the month of Nisan. If you want to look that up in your Bible, sometimes it's called the month of Aviv, but it is always in that month. This used to be the seventh month, but God said in this event, this is to become the first month for you. So it used to be the seventh month prior to Moses in the Exodus. Say prior. 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 But after Moses in the Exodus, it has become the first, first month. Okay. Now turn to Leviticus 23, 33 through 35. Say fuego when you get there. Fuego. 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 The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month, the Lord's feast of tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The seventh month used to be Nisan, but is now Tishri. Sukkot is celebrated on the 15th of Tishri and lasts for seven days. So those of you who can't do the math in your head like me, we're speaking about the 22nd day of the seventh month that they're having this celebration, that all the people are going home glad. What did it mean for Solomon? Why did Solomon send the people home on the 23rd day? Saints, they have just celebrated Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, where we are expecting that God would dwell with men permanently. Today in modern Israel, this is celebrated by sleeping it in a non-permanent structure, by sleeping somewhere for seven days that represents the time that you were in the desert. But what this was intended to do was draw to mind God's desire to dwell with man. Well, what is the context of the passage? What just happened? Fire from God has fallen. God is beginning to dwell with man. And it is on the day that was established during the time of Moses saying that one day God will dwell with man. The promises that were given to the patriarchs, that were given to Moses, are being fulfilled in this moment. And a feast that year after year after year after year they've been celebrating. That is preparing them. Reminding them, teaching their children that one day this event would occur has just occurred and they are celebrating it together. There is a serious reason that they're rejoicing. They're actually watching the reality come to earth. Come on, that's good, isn't it? (laughs) On a day where they celebrate, they're in temporary tents and they're waiting for the full permanent dwelling. On that day is when the fire came in the permanent dwelling. Man, that's good, isn't it? The fire of God showing us the way to go, refining us. It's leading us to the permanent structure. The fire of God before that was leading them to this point, and now they're there. It's the same thing in your life. The fire of God is leading you to your permanent structure. Come on. And you've just got to go with the flow, right? And let's pick up in verse 11, and we're going to pick up a little bit. 
Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, and he had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do with the temple of the Lord and his own palace. Oh, saints, he succeeded in carrying out all that he had. Listen, we cannot preach enough, we cannot teach enough, we cannot study enough about succeeding and carrying out the task that God has given you. It's not enough to start a thing. You must carry it to completion. There are other things that are going to happen between Solomon and the Lord. Beautiful things that are coming in just a couple verses. But they're all predicated upon him completing what God sent him to do. Luke 9, 57 says, As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Nice words. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have their nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first, first this, first that, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God has come to earth. Go out with a little bit of fire in your step. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one, somebody say, no one. No one. No one puts his hands to the plow and looks back as fit for service in the kingdom of God. Our part to play in his promise is something that we have to understand. He will get it done. His promises are true and are real, but we must fully accomplish what he sent us to. We cannot take our hand off the plow and expect that we will be a part of his promise. He'll get it done with someone who will hold his hands on the plow. It's time that we be strong and do the work. And the basis for this is us actually having the holy purifying fire of God. Being ready, willing, excited, happy to go through all seven steps that is required to actually have godly sorrow. Listen, you started this journey. Don't you dare take your hand off the plow. Find real godly sorrow in this house. John 4, 34 says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish... Finish his work. Saints, we want you and the example of Christ to be able to participate with your father in the kingdom to come because you finished your work. Just like Solomon did in verse 11. What's verse 12, Linton? The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifice. So we're about to get into the crux of our chapter tonight. We've shared some good things, haven't we? Yes. But we're about to get into the meat. We're about to get into the things that we want you to take away. Everything's been building up to this, but these are the things that we want you to leave with here. This is a special moment between the Lord and the King. You notice in the last chapter when he prayed, he prayed in front of all the nation. And then what does God do? I mean, that prayer last week was pretty awesome, wasn't it? And he prayed it in front of the whole nation. We're about to hear God speak the answer. We're about to hear God speak the answer to the most, the greatest prayer in all the Bible. But how does the Lord do it? He appeared to him at night. He appeared to him at night all by himself when no one else was around. This is a special moment between the Lord and the king. This is intimate and personal. This is the time when you are separate from everyone else and God is just speaking to you clearly. This is the crux. After all his building and praying, this is the most important thing he needs to get right. And he's doing this in a very personal moment. Come on. Let me ask. I'm going to ask a question and I don't don't answer. 
Don't raise any hands. But how is your prayer life at night? How is your prayer life when nobody's watching? How is your prayer life when you get up and the pastor asks you to pray for the kids? Well, you want to have the most eloquent, well-crafted prayer at that moment. This is Solomon alone with the Lord. There's a story that goes around, and a young man goes to an older man, and he says, the Lord's called me, the Lord has called me to serve him. The older man looks at the younger man and says, son, can you be alone? And the younger man thinks that he's saying, can you be alone because you'll be persecuted? But what the old man's really saying is, can you learn how to be alone with God and hear from him? That is a treasure chest, my friends. Learning how to be alone from God when everyone else is off at wherever they're doing, be alone with God and hear his voice. That is how God speaks to his servants. Now, he spe- if you can't do that rightly, he will send someone to speak to you. But he, longs, he longs for that intimate, special time where it's just you and him speaking together. Yeah. And this is what is happening with Solomon. Exodus 3.12 says, And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Man, the sign was that he completed it. Listen, you want more of God's presence in your life. Then we're going to have to obey the word that the pastors just shared with us out of Galatians. That we carry our load and stop worrying about every other needless thing you can busy your time with. You want to know whether or not you can be alone with God? Do you carry your own load when somebody is not helping you do it? Would you be here if you didn't have three brothers on your left and right rescuing you from your pit of sin every six months? Are you able to stand and say, you will see the sign when it is done because God has entrusted it with me. I'm not letting it go. I'm carrying it to the end. God is meeting with Solomon after he has finished the temple. He didn't meet with him before. He didn't meet with him during. He gave him a task and he met with him after he did what he was told to do. Perhaps you should stop asking God to reveal something new to you so often and start doing what he said and maybe he'll appear to you without you asking. God is meeting with Solomon after he answered by fire. His holiness, his word, his spirit, his refining process. And dear God, that refining process so often happens as you complete the work. It doesn't happen while you're sitting at the altar. It happens as you stand up. He's about to tell him about the fire that is still to come. The holiness that is still required. The things that will happen that will refine Israel and must refine his own soul and the descendants after him. Do you want to know what he said to him? Yes. Brother Linton, verse 13 for us. And Linton, Justin is going to interrupt you more than a few times. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. So this is God's answer. And how does God start? When? When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. When God puts the people in a position where they can't grow anything. Perhaps they'll cry out. Where they can't grow anything that they can live by. Perhaps they'll cry out. What's the next one say? Or command locusts to devour the land. If he affects the area where they can't grow anything and they don't listen, then he moves on to destroying what they already have. And if that doesn't work, he does the next step. Or send a plague among my people. Man, a plague. You know, the Greek word for that in the Septuagint is death. When he sends death among his people, 
This is not COVID-19. I'm sorry all the people that think COVID-19 is the judgment of God. It's not. When he literally sends death upon them. Now, those three things, let's look back at chapter 6. That's what we covered last week. Let's look at, back at it quickly. Let's put 2 Chronicles 6.26 on the screen. When the heavens are shut up. Now, who's praying here? Solomon. Solomon. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you. Let's put 2 Chronicles 6.28. When famine or plague comes to the land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers. The three things that Solomon prayed, the Lord is answering in the three things that Solomon prayed. He's giving him three answers specifically to the things he prayed about. And you've got to think about that for a second. Come on. Solomon prayed to the Lord about these three things because he foresaw that they would happen to the people. You following that? Yeah. Solomon foresaw. He, he's looking at the people and he's saying, man, this is a, a stiff-necked people. These people are rebellious. They know how to get it right, but they also know how to get it very wrong. Lord, when you send these things to correct them, please receive their repentance. Now, how does God answer that? The Lord says, not if these things happen. He says, when they happen. The Lord is acknowledging that this will happen to the people. The Lord knows full well that these things are going to have to happen because the people can be rebellious. But you know what he also does? He gives a path of godly sorrow because he's faithful. Amen. He teaches you what godly sorrow looks like because he wants you to get it right. Come on, is anybody hearing me tonight? Yes. When the Lord sends a plague, how many of you have experienced a plague on your spiritual life? Yeah, he does that because he's good to you. But he also teaches you how to have godly sorrow so that you can learn what you need to do to fully repent. Listen, will you help us out and give us that pathway? Verse 14. If my people who are called by my name come on. humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Man, oh man, those words are precious when you're afflicted. Yeah. You know, you're going to heal the land. You're going to... Help us when we're afflicted. You're going to do all of these things and you're sitting in comfort. It really doesn't mean that much to you. But when you're acquainted with the fire of God and you're on the wrong side of it, when you're being refined because the presence of sin in you is strong, you didn't realize how strong it was. It actually is all over you and you had no idea. And then somebody tells you that you can be healed. Man, there's no word quite like that. We want to break this down for you. Hey, you guys take good notes here. Because this is going to help level your walk right here. Some of the low parts in your walk that you, you're really praying to God, Lord, I want this fixed. I'm tired of this. This is going to help those things. Are you ready for it? Yes. So our previous verses mention the things that happen as a result of sin. Stunted growth. Or perhaps even non-existent growth in some cases. Now we're not talking about the land anymore, saints. Hear me. There's been no rain on you. Because of sin and disobedience, God has not watered your land. Your fruit, the things you do have, are being devoured by plague, by locusts, by things that have been sent on you. It's creating a kind of spiritual dryness, a deadness, an overwhelming feeling that something is between you and God and there is no escape. 
that death itself is at work inside of you. You're not dying to self. Self is killing you and killing your spirit. Your spirit is waning. It's not nearly as strong as it was the day that you got born again. Or as strong as it was two years before you fell into apathy and sin. When these things are devouring your life, when you realize that these things are occurring in your life, this is when it's time to repent and ask God for real fire. To ask Him and invite Him into your life. Has anybody ever woken up in that? Yes. Yes. It's like, I don't know what happened, but I just feel, I feel dry. I don't know what's going on, but I feel like I'm waning in spirit. I don't have a desire for the word like I used to. I don't even want to pray. I don't even want to, to be around my brothers in the Lord. When that hits you, that is an indicator that it's time to repent for something. The next thing in verse 14, he starts it off by saying, if my people say that with me, if my people, if my people. Now, when you wake up and you realize you're spiritually dead, when you realize that locusts are eating the fruit that you once used to have, the first thing you need to remember is that you are his. Come on. Come on. Let that sink in. The first thing you need to remember is that you belong to the Lord. Your spiritual dryness has not separated him from you. It separated you from him and you just didn't see it. But now the fact that you're waking up and realizing it is the Lord trying to show you something. The first thing you have to remember is that you are his. You're not a castaway. You're not a son that's being rejected. You're not a son that's being thrown away. You're not, you're not a son that the Lord doesn't want to talk to anymore. You still belong to him. He purchased you with his blood for God's sakes. It literally says in the scripture, he who gave his only son for you, will he not give you all things in Christ? You are still his. That moment you wake up and you realize something's wrong with me. The pastors have been trying to tell me, but I haven't been listening. It's time to start remembering that you do belong to him. Don't feel like you've been cast out. That is the devil trying to tell you that you should just hang yourself like Judas did. And that is not the answer. The very first thing God starts with, if my people, you are his people. Come on. What's the next thing, Judah? Who are called by my name. Not only are you belonging to him, he's taken you. He's put his very name upon you. Those who are called by my name. Look back on your life in these moments. Can you see his calling at work? Did he place something of his character, of his body of work, of his representation upon you? Man, there's some days you have to look at his character that has been placed upon you. Not exactly what you're seeing at the moment. Remind yourself of it. We cannot ascend to the heights that we are called to if we refuse to remember what he has already placed on us. Those who are called by my name. He's placed ownership, placed possession. Not only did he bring you into his house, He gave you as his name. That is saying that he is committed to you acting like and being his people. He's trying to ingrain. He's trying to ingrain something into you. Now I've watched brand new Christians just get born again. And the very first time they sin, what do they usually feel like? That they've lost it. I go through a checklist in my mind sometimes where I really feel like I have done bad where I really feel like I'm failing and I literally go, okay, Lord, you called me at 17. You saved me by your blood. I was wicked and you chose me. 
I was brought here by you. I failed many times on the way, but I was brought to LCM by you. You have to do that sometimes. Yes. You have to go through that and you have to remember, okay, the Lord called me at 17. The Lord brought me here not to throw me away, but he brought me here because he cared about me and he wants me to grow. His name is on you, church. Don't ever let that lose focus or the devil will try to get that fact out of your mind so hard that you'll feel like he has abandoned you. Don't let it happen. If you are his people, you are called by his name, then we must sit. We must contemplate. We must lay down on our bed and be able to sit before the Lord and ask him to show us what's going on. Why are these plagues being brought upon you? If you belong to him and he's afflicting your fruit, if your spiritual life and vitality is being drained out of you, and you're his, you're not somebody else's, you're not another people, if you actually belong to him, why have these things been brought to you? It's so that his name will receive glory when you get it right. Yeah. When you begin to be refined in the way that causes you to become like him, Come on. that causes you to awaken, that causes you to stir and rise to the calling that is upon your life as a son of God in this house. He has not abandoned you, though it may feel like it. It's actually the grace of God that he does not let you continue in your own way. He brought these things to cause you to come to an awareness. We cannot kick it against the goads. We must remember who we belong to. And if our father is taking a belt to us, it's for a damn good reason. Pay attention, son. (laughs) What's your next one? He says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. This This is one of the most important steps. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Man, would you like to learn how to do that better? Yes. Yes. I'm going to tell you, this is the most important step. And oftentimes in our walk, this is the hardest step. I find in me, one of the hardest things to do in the moment is humble myself. And I know if I feel that way, you guys feel it too, don't you? This is where you are willing to lay down pride. Everybody say willing. Willing. This is where you're willing to lay down defenses. Come on. This is where you're willing to admit that you have an issue. Man, it's hard to get to that point, isn't it? Look, I know we preach, hey, you've got to humble yourself. But let's admit, it's hard to get there, isn't it? Sometimes you just feel like, man, I'm doing good. And then this happened, and now I feel like I'm not. Humbling yourself is the key. But how do you get there? How do you humble yourself? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Some of us know what it feels like to be humbled. Some of us know what it feels like to humble yourself. Humbling yourself and being humbled are not the same thing. (laughs) But let's really dig into this. How do you humble yourself? We want to give you a couple tools in this. I want you to, I want to hand out a few passages. And this is on how to humble yourself. Hayes, you get 2 Corinthians 5.17. Brandon, you're going to get 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Paul Rosales, you're going to get Romans 7.17. Rob, you're going to get Galatians 5.16-18. And uh, Alicia, you're going to get Luke 14. 26 through 27. And I believe that's it. Okay. Look, this is going to be a good topic. How to humble yourself. A lot of us are really wanting to know that answer. Read 2 Corinthians 5.17 and we're going to start on a linear path that helps you humble yourself. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old 
What you need to know when you are facing a plague is that you are his people, that you have been called by my name, and he has already made you into a new creation. Has anybody in this room experienced that? Yes. I have experienced a change in my nature. Before I was born again, I loved sin, and I did everything I loved, which was sin. But when I got born again, when I met Jesus Christ as the love of my life, I was born again with new desires, a new heart. The Bible says that this has already happened to you. If you're sitting here tonight and you love Jesus Christ, you are already a new creation with new desires and a new heart. Now, it doesn't feel like that all the time, but that is what the Bible says that you are. This is one of your 12 gates. You are a new creation with new desires. You have been recreated by the refining fire of God. Amen. You have been recreated and born of the Spirit from heaven at this point. You have escaped the fire of God's judgment up to this point. You need to know that when you are being brought, when a correction is being brought to you, the first thing you need to realize is that you are a new creation. You are a new person. The things that are happening inside you, you should look at them and say, hey, I'm a new creature. That is the old creature rising Come up. On. Who's got 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8? Hey, read those last four words again for me. As you really are. Okay. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. As you really are. Paul is presenting us as a new batch. Somebody say new batch. New, new batch. batch. A new batch. A new creation. A new entity. But there is still old yeast that is within us. How can you both be new and old at the same time? And yet you are. And every one of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that. Yeah, yeah. There is still a sinful nature inside of us. What the fire of God's holiness is for in us is to complete the process. Somebody say, I'm new. I'm new. I want you to begin to make a distinction in your mind that helps you humble yourself, that helps you walk in the right way. When you're identifying yeast, that yeast is not you. That yeast is the old you. So it's humiliating when the old you is beating the crap out of you, <laughs> yeah, it but it's still not you, and you need to remove it. The only way it becomes you is when you identify it, when somebody has helped you identify it or a plague has, and you leave it inside you. Listen, yeast works its way through all kinds of stuff. You hang on to it, yeah, you'll become it. It will be one with you. But when we recognize that we are sons of God in his house and we see something that is not of the new batch, we hurl it out with the fire of God. Amen. And we continue in the new creation under heaven that we're called to be. Who has Romans 7? As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Now, this, this passage can be a problem for most to understand, but I, I want you to catch just this one sentence. Paul understood that he was a new creature with new desires. He understood that he was brand new in Christ, and yet sin was living in him. He was able to recognize that he had a problem and that he needed the fire of the Spirit. He was able to see, I am a new creature, but there's something inside of me working. And it's something I don't want to do, so it's not the new man in me doing it, it's the old man doing it, and I need to put it down. Now with that in mind, who's got Galatians 5, 16 through 18? So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. 
Man, you have the Spirit in you. Who's got the Spirit in you? I do. But you also have something else in you, and that's your sinful nature. Your heart was made brand new, but your heart is still covered with sinful flesh. You have two natures warring. You desire to do the right thing because you are made new. Before you were born again, you did not desire to do the right thing. You loved your sin, and that's why you did it. Now you love Jesus Christ, and when you sin, you feel that tension, man. You're like, I didn't want to do this, but I did it anyway. That is the old nature in you warring with the Spirit. Sin, like the old yeast, is trying to contaminate. Look, this distinction, able to recognize those two things inside of you, this is how it makes it easier to humble yourself. I literally look at myself at third person, and when someone comes to me with a correction... Like, hey, brother, you're doing this wrong. I go, I know I don't want to do it, man. Help me beat him. He's trying to rise up. The old me is trying to rise up. Help me kill him. He's looking stronger in the moment, but I need some help, man. Hey, you go for the neck. I'll go for the legs. Hey, you, 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 you hit him there, and then I'll hit him back. <laughs> you being able to differentiate yourself, what you really want, who you really are in Christ, and being to differentiate that with what is at work in you, it actually makes it easier to humble yourself because you're able to target the thing that needs to be killed. Come on. This is how we can easily humbling our, humble ourselves. This makes it easier to confess. You can literally say, hey, I messed up, but it's not who I'm supposed to be. It's not who I am in Christ. It's the old me, and I'm still putting him to death. But you know what? If you're always defending your actions, if you're always trying to defend yourself when you're being corrected, it shows that you and your sin are still one. It shows that you're still one with the sin. It might show that you're not actually a new creation in Christ Jesus if you're trying to defend your sin. People that know the difference between the two easily recognize and admit and humble ourselves and say, yeah, Pastor, I did mess up. It's not me. It's not what I want to do. It's not what I'm going to be. But it is the sin that's in me, and let's kill it together. Listen, that was good. That one point is worth reiterating. When you understand who you are in Christ, you can look at the old man and say, yeah, he's alive, but he's going to be dead tomorrow. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. When you fight to defend the old man, you're proving that the old man is you. You understand? Humility. Actually humbling yourself brings real freedom. David Bonham back there is a man that is killing the old man. It's not him. He's a man of God that is growing in power and strength as the Lord aids him. We have to distinguish the two. And when you catch yourself defending something that's supposed to be dead or dying in the immediate future, you're proving yourself to be a son of the devil in that moment instead of a son of God. But when you know who you are in Christ, we don't put up with that. And we don't put up with it from each other. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Hey, Luke 14, 26. 27. All right, all right. Yes, we are talking about your 
natural relatives. We're talking about the ones that you go visit over and over again and you should have stopped five years ago and it's destroying you. Come on. But that's not our context at this moment. Our earnestness and eagerness to clear ourselves looks like disregard for our own self, for our own even life. Yes, it's supposed to. When you understand what Justin is teaching you about, you're disregarding that life that is no longer you. It is so much easier to show flagrant disregard for your own personal safety when you realize, yeah, that's the old me, and he's dying every day. I'd be happy to expiate the process. I'm becoming something new. I am something new in Jesus Christ. You ought to treat your simple nature like that villain that is your arch nemesis. Someone comes to you and say, hey, I'm scared. You're, you're walking on the right path. What you're doing is dangerous for your life and your family's life. You ought to say, yeah, man, help me, kill, help me stop this villain yes. from doing this. He's trying to take over and help me kill him. This leads to godly humility, not worldly humility, that invites the fire of God to come in and consume you. Purge you. Purge the old you so that you might be something more. Listen, this is painful. Nobody said this was an easy process. But when you understand what you are in Christ, it becomes a process that you love, that you're looking for. And you surely don't defend it. You don't defend the thing that you want to die, that you want out of your life. You you long for it. You yearn for it. And God answers those kinds of prayers. Look, the targets of God's holy wrath His holy fire, his holy rage. It is not the person correcting you, I assure you. (laughs) It's not the elders, definitely not them. And it's not your brother. It's not even you. It's your sinful nature that has to die. It's the unholy man inside of you that must be burned up for you to dwell with a holy God. You want to be united with your father. You want to be like your father. Well, then we must go to war and we cannot tolerate the thing that cannot enter into his presence. I assure you. He sent his son down to give us freedom. He's not breaking or bending rules now after doing that. (laughs) We must become the holy people that he's called us to. If we cling to the old man, we are unifying ourselves with something that is contemptible and cannot dwell in his fire. But when we live as free men, we can rejoice in Christ. We can have fellowship in Christ. And we can have the fire of Christ in our hearts. Man, that is, that's gold, isn't it? Yes. You know how to humble yourself better that way? Yes. It still won't be easy, but at least gives you the right target to kill. We all have an arch nemesis, and it's our simple natures in us. Look, the next step after that, he says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray. Man, when you begin to target your sin correctly, when you humble yourself, this forms an attitude that will move the Lord's heart. Oh, come on. James 5.16, the very end of the verse says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. When you've got the fire of God's holiness working in you, it causes you to pray rightly. And you know what else it causes? It causes your prayers to be heard. Oftentimes we're like, why is God not hearing my prayer? It's because we have to humble ourselves before we pray. We have to become a righteous, powerful, and effective man when we're praying. The very next one is seek my face. And this is one of my favorites. This is... Ponim, we're not talking about just his appearance. We're talking about his presence, about his countenance, about even his emotions, his character, and his thoughts. When you begin to pray and seek his mind, will, and emotions, get out of your own head in the name of Jesus and do it soon. 
Wives, get out of your own head and get into your husband's mind. It's not enough just to comply. You need to actually seek the face of your authority figure. Husbands, be a reflection of God that is worthy of following. Amen. Humble yourself and pray. Amen. Listen to me. Just like every other man in this room, the number of times that rage, that frustration, that a feeling of fruitlessness in work can come over you. Seek his face. Find his countenance. Find his emotions. Find his character. And you will find the deliverance of your God. Listen, this is not just a quaint little prayer. This is not somebody praying over food. This takes time. This is something you are actively fighting for. This is God forging something into your soul with fire. It takes heat to forge something. And if he's going to make you into an instrument that is worthy of his purposes, it's going to take a little friction. It's going to take a little fight. You might actually have to be fierce in this. Seek his face, church. Our next one is turn from their wicked ways. This is the result of God's holy fire in you. This is the product of God's holy fire working through these steps. After you humble yourself, pray, seek his face. You seek his mind, will, and emotions. This is the result is that you turn from your wicked way. This is the most crucial step in the process. You actually have to stop doing what you're doing that is wicked. You know how you haven't done that? Well, you keep doing what is wicked. If there's something in your life that you're praying to stop, that you're trying to repent of, and it keeps going, then you haven't done this process well. The result of it is always to stop and put an end to the old man in you. To stop him dead in his tracks, man. To see him coming and rip around right in his head and leave him dead right there. That is what you must do. Admitting your sin, praying for forgiveness, seeking him is all worthless if it does not result in repentance that is turning away from the sin. This is, a, this is not beating up on you. This should be an indicator in your life. Is there sin that you want to turn away from and haven't? You can't. Well, then you have to do this process rightly. You've got to do the seven steps in 2 Corinthians 7 rightly to do this. This means stop doing. It definitely means stop doing, but you know what else it means? It means to stop thinking about that sin. Come on. Not just your actions, but you have to stop thinking about those wicked ways. And you have to stop feeding the thing that is trying to kill you. Man, it's one thing to stop doing it with your actions. It's another thing to stop feeding the source inside of you. This is Galatians 5, 16 through 18. So I say live by the Spirit. Man, live by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Oftentimes the question from young men, young women, how do I stop doing what I'm doing? Well, you don't stop doing what you're doing by entering a program or counting the times in between you haven't done it. You stop doing it by feeding the spirit in your life. And it says as a promise, you will not gratify those desires if you gratify the spirit. Whichever dog in you you feed the most, that's the one that will grow. You've got two dogs inside of you, an evil one and a righteous one. Which one are you going to feed? The one you feed the most is the one that will grow. Look, we have one more thing we want to show you from verse 14. We're going to put a slide on the screen. You guys see this? Humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from wickedness. And then he will hear from heaven. Then he will forgive their sins. And then even more than that, he will heal the actual land. Listen, we need God to hear us. We also need him to forgive our sins. More than just hear us, we need a change in our status with him. 
and then for actual healing in our life. That is a change of behavior. That is a new soul, a new spirit, a new flesh that happens as a result of it. But there is no healing without humbling. You cannot jump this chasm. You must go down into this chasm and rise back up. Amen. There is no forgiveness without righteous prayer. There is no hearing from heaven if we do not seek heaven. And it is all aimed and dependent upon turning from wicked ways. This is how the fire of holiness refines us. And it is not a one-time process. This is a way of life. The faster that you are doing it, the better that you are doing it. Amen. If you're doing this seven times a day, aim for seven times seven. Our goal is to be in right order in God's healing. There is no other path to it besides what his word lays out for us. This is his path for holy fire and refinement in our life. There is no way to become the instruments of God without feeling the heat that is required in this. Yeah. No, nothing about this is ease. Nothing about it is overwhelmingly pleasant. But what it is, is actual holiness. Actual fire and actual healing is the final result. Hey, verse 15. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. He says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive. Look, his eyes are open, his ears attentive, but he's already given the conditions. When you're in the place he told you to be, he is among you like a fire. Come on, tell me it doesn't matter where you pray, worship, or go to church. It does matter. To be in the place where God told you is to have His attention. If you exit that place in any moment, you no longer have His eyes on you and His ears attentive. This is the one place that is different. This is the one place where your toxic independence will not affect you. This is the one place He's instituted. You don't just come anywhere. You don't just go anywhere you want. God puts you in a specific place. Amen. Hey, what's verse 16 say? I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name will be, may, be, may be there forever. My <laughs> eyes and my heart will always be there. Man, listen, saints, it's going to be difficult for both of us not to talk about this verse. But his name will be there. It's already been established several times. He will be there forever. And also... His eyes and his heart are there forever. He's not distant. He's close. He's a jealous God that is longing for serious, holy communion. Very rarely in the scripture do you hear about God's heart. And it's usually in a negative context. It's what's happening that is grieving him. It says that God's heart is there. Can you really tell me that the God of all creation said that my eyes, my name, and my heart are going to be there forever? And that Israel's just any other nation? That Jerusalem is just any other city? Much has been done in this place. Atrocities have been committed. It has looked like God has abandoned it. But I assure you, the God that said this has not forgotten the terms or his promises. But even in these situations, he still will be there, and his plan is still everlasting. His name, his eyes, his heart are there forever. He's not given up on any element to bring that to fruition. Oh, yeah. 17. As for you, if you walk before me as David your father did, and do all I command, and observe my decrees and laws. Now we're going to see something interesting here. Yeah. He has just talked about what will happen if the nation repents. Now he's talking specifically to Solomon. As for you, Solomon... That you means you. 
In, in Hebrew, it's singular. He's talking to Solomon, the man. It's not y'all, it's you. He is now speaking to the king and he's saying, if you walk before me as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws. That's a big if, isn't it? Yeah, huge. That is a big if. And yet God's promised something to that family that will last forever. It's contingent, it's contingent upon them and each generation to walk it out. Otherwise, they won't take part. But they will be there forever. He's speaking to the king, talking about his descendants. Hey, what's verse 18 through 19? I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David, your father, when I said, you shall never fail to have a man rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship you, then I will uproot Israel from my land. This is a huge if. If you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands and serve other gods and worship them. Now read verse 20. Then I will open Israel from my land. Man, that sounds interesting, right? Yes. He's saying if you, is he saying, you mean to tell me if he says, if you Solomon disobey me, I will uproot the whole nation. There's something interesting here. This you in verse 19, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees, it's plural. This is not singular. He's saying to Solomon, if you do what I say, your family will be blessed. And if you all do what I say, I will not uproot Israel. But if you all do not do what I say, I will uproot your people. He's speaking to the man in charge, but he's telling them what happens to the people under him. Yeah. You getting that? He's speaking to the fathers in the room and he's saying, look, fathers, if you do what I say, I will give you the promise I gave you. But if your children and your people do not do what I say, then I will uproot them from their land. How much responsibility is placed in that? Man, fathers, we have got to realize that there are people under our direction and it is up to us to teach them to walk in the commands just like we have to. If we do not instill that into the next generation. If we do not instill that into the people around us, then they will be uprooted. And whose fault will it be? Uh, our fault. Saints. We would like to blame someone else, but we can't. Ultimately, we're responsible. Israel's the firstborn nation. They're our older brother. They show us an example. God knew they were going to need refinement. And he speaks to a man and says, if. He speaks to a man about his family and says, if. Then he speaks to a man about his nation and says, if. After demonstrating the holiness of God and what the fruit of righteousness will be or what the fruit of judgment of God will be, he's speaking to him about one life, one family, one nation and the pathway to holiness and righteousness in God. Israel is an example to us of what was done right and what was not done right so that we might learn to get it right ourselves. Brother, pick up in verse 20 for me and read through 22. After reading this in closing, we're going to look at this for our own lives and walk it out together. Which I have given them, and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer it, because they have forsaken the Lord the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt and embraced other gods, worshiping them and serving them. 
That is why he brought all this disaster on them. Somebody say that's bad. That's bad. This is really bad. And God never brings about plague or punishment upon his sons, his chosen people that bear his name without an objective in mind. He is refining his people when they sin. And I assure you, he will have his remnant. He will have his remnant in every nation, in every place, and he will have his remnant out of the house of David. Hebrews 2, verse 11 says, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. We have a king who is able to take men that are wicked, that are depraved, that have yeast all over them. In fact, they are yeast and create a new nature in you. He's able to fill you with a new kind of fire that is a spirit of holiness. He's able to drive you along and even bring plague and famine upon your life to get you to turn your attention. Why? Because he's in the business of making men holy so that you might be able to dwell with him. In fact, the whole family, both on heaven and earth, both Jew and Gentile, might dwell together as holy. Listen, our sanctuary, our temple, our place where God has put us in the fire of God. It's not eternal if we're not faithful. It is our job to walk in the promises that God has given us and our fathers, just like Solomon and David. It's our job to cultivate the fire of God and the holiness of God so that it might continue for the generations after us, so that it might affect the nation, so that it might radiate out from here. We must play our part in the promise. God has given us good and precious promises, and we have a part to play in it. The greatest prayer in the Bible and the greatest answer. And there is a stunning part to play that must be fulfilled. And as we get into coming chapters, it's going to get brutal. Listen, it does not matter how great your revelation is. It does not matter how great your promise is or how great God has made your family. If you don't play your part in it, it will not succeed through you. It will succeed through someone. But we now have a chance to cling to the God who makes men holy so that we might be his instruments and servants. Justin, will you tell us about Luke 3? In closing, we're going to share a few passages with you. Luke 3, 16 through 18 says, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable unquenchable fire. Look, the fire of God will either burn us up as chaff because we've refused to remove the yeast or it will birth something new. Come on. The fire of God is always present. We've seen it many times in our midst. The fire of God either burns up those who do not want to repent or it will empower us to live a holy life. Hey, I want you to catch verse 18. With many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. You know what the good news was? Good news was that the spirit and fire were being poured out, that God would make men holy. Chaff was being sweeped away, but not everyone had to stay chaff. You were born chaff. You were chaff the day that you exited the womb, and you remained that way until the fire of God entered your life. Now it's time to complete the process. This is the good news of the gospel. That that old man is being burned up and we're getting closer to the permanent dwelling of God. The resurrection of the dead where we might live within him. God is working inside of our body now. And I promise you it's not the first time the elders or the pastors have seen it. His cleansing fire is working through and some will be made holy. Others will refuse to be made holy and so they become chaff that is burned away. 
but I can see in some of your eyes that you're ready to be made holy. Amen. That some of you are going to be increasing in holiness. That who you are a year from now will not be who you were Amen. yesterday. Amen. Hey, the Lord spoke to our body about Isaiah 37, 31 through 32. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah. Why do you have to have a remnant? Because there was refinement from fire that previously took place. We'll take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant. Out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This will happen to Israel. The context is about Israel. But the Lord also spoke it to us. Listen, it may not mean yeah. something to everybody else in this house, but it ought to mean something to you if you're a son. Amen. The Lord spoke that out of this body, there would be a remnant. That means there is a refining fire. And then not all are going to make it, but others will be made stronger. They will take root below. They'll bear fruit that lasts above. Amen. Fruit that lasts must come from your life, and the Lord will cause it to come to pass if you're faithful. We know that you can be. We know that you will be in the name of Jesus. Take your stand and embrace God's refinement with humility, with humbleness that comes from you humbling yourself, not having God force you to be humble. There is no healing without humbling, but as we are humbled by God's refining fire, we are healed and made stronger than we were before as we go through his process and his plan. Amen. Daniel eleven thirty three through 35 says, Those who are wise will instruct many. Though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help. And many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise, some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made spotless until the time of the end. For it will still come at the appointed time. Come on. Look, this passage is certainly not about the lost. This is about wise men who are amongst us. It's about those who cling to his name. It is for the refinement and for your perseverance that you stumble. I know that sounds weird, but listen to me. When you stumble, God is trying to teach you something there. When you stumble, the Lord is using that as an opportunity to refine you. He's using that fire that you feel. Accepting the offerings, accepting the sacrifices, because he's teaching you how to make right sacrifices he's using the areas in your life that you don't want anybody to see the areas that you don't want to see he's using that to teach you how to walk in holiness he's using that to teach you how to go through the seven step process so you can learn how to walk in humility learn how to pray learn how to seek his face learn how to turn from your wicked ways and then you'll be able to teach other people how to do it Greater glory is coming out of this. Don't view it as just a failure because you're a failure. You're not a failure. You are still his son. And he's doing these things in you for refinement. It's time to stand up and say, hallelujah, I'm being refined. He's not leaving me where I'm at. And he hasn't left me where I'm at. And he will never leave me where I'm at. As long as you're willing to humble himself, he is carrying you to completion. Colossians 1, 9 through 14 is where we started. And where we're going to end. I'm going to read 9 and 10. Then Justin will pick up from there. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Listen, the phrase spiritual wisdom just sounds like nothing. I mean, in all honesty, it's like, what does that mean? We're speaking about a knowledge of God and his plan that leads to our actions and daily interactions with the world around us. When you understand what he is doing in you, 
when you understand where we are going and what his plan is. You have the ability to build on earth according to those plans instead of fumbling around blindly without the blueprints. We are praying. God has been asking and moving and helping us and through these pastors and in the one association, increasing the spiritual wisdom that we walk in. Not memorizing facts, but actually knowing God's plan. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way. We want you, we want to, Live a life that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing Him in every way. Hear this next part. Bearing fruit in every good work. To bear fruit, our land must be healed. Yeah. To bear good fruit, our land must be healed and we must have rain. All the way from one side to the other of the chiastic structure, we need it to bear good fruit and we can't live without it. Come on. Growing in the knowledge of God. Listen, you are our friends, you are our family. We told you in advance that we're going to be sharing on a personal level. I want to warn my friends and my family. Outward adornment, pious speech, and proud hearts will never make you worthy. Humility in the work of God's holy fire in your life is the only thing that will make you worthy. You cannot dress up with enough fig leaves or enough right actions to hide the condition of your heart. Hear me. You don't have forever to fix it. There are consequences that are not reconcilable. Now is the time to strip those things back. Come on. Do whatever it takes to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Invite the fire that you're scared of into your life. And you will become what you have longed to be, what you've seen other men do in this house. Today would be your day. Because you stripped away every other thing that has hidden you from the fire of God. Justin, verse 11 says, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Man, according to His glorious might, church. Amen. Not being strengthened by your own glorious might. But being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. So that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Look, this doesn't say already strengthened in everything that you have. This is a process of us being strengthened together. Amen. We are being strengthened right now. Tisdale, you're being strengthened as you're sitting here. Yeah. Bottom, you are being strengthened every time yeah. you show up with a good attitude. Amen. We are being strengthened. This is good news. The Lord is not leaving you where you were yesterday. Amen. He is making you stronger every day. This is the ongoing empowerment that you need. Yes. All of us in this room are going to do great things for the Lord. All of us in this room have amazing things. You are all created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Amen. He has things for you. And he's giving you the ongoing empowerment so that you can do them. Your ongoing increasing endurance. Man, the fire is getting hotter. The things required of you today are more than the things required of you yesterday. Can you feel that? Yeah, yeah. Can you feel that you're growing in your discernment, your knowledge? And now that you are, you're required more. This requires an ongoing increasing endurance, and the Lord is giving that to you. He's giving you that. This is ongoing yes. increasing holiness. Amen. The target we are after is not that just one man stands amongst many and he's a holy saint. The target we're after is not just one pastor here or one elder there is the holiest amongst them all. The target we're after is that every person is living in the kind of tangible, felt, Holiness 
that you can actually feel it working in you. You can actually have a joy inside of you. Yes. You actually have a daily type of relationship with the Lord that's resulting in daily holiness. It's not without failure. It's not without repentance. But you know what that does? It makes you more holy. Amen. Yeah. Fear is not fatal. Sorry. Failure is not fatal. Failure is not final. And it's not futile. Your failure is, is going to result in more holiness tonight. We are being made fit for the Father's work in the fires of His holiness. That is what the Lord is doing in this body through the last yes. messages that we are getting. Amen. We are all going to be holy together. Amen? Being made fit. Yes. Consider that as we read verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. He has qualified you. He will qualify you. Now he is teaching us the tools to continue in the process that he's given us. The fact that you've been allowed to sit here with the grace of God in your life, the fire of God in your life, is Christ himself qualifying you to sit in the kingdom of light, the inheritance of his saints? It's no small thing to be included in it. No. And it's nothing that you want to give up. It's worth fighting for. It's worth progressing in. Yeah. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Saints, this evening we want to entreat you to live like you're in the kingdom. Live like you're sons of the almighty God, like you're princes in this world, both in the heavens and the earth, because he chose you. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In his fire we find redemption of our bodies. We find the redemption of our nature and the way that our flesh wants to act. We find redemption even in our own very souls. We are his people and we must be made like him. And we will be made like him. Take seriousness and take heart this evening. We're your friends. We're your family. We will be here. I promise you, Justin and I are going to be doing exactly what we're doing now next year. Repenting more often and working harder. Heck yeah. I want you to be doing it alongside us with everything that you are called to be. Is that your hope? Yes. yes. We want to pray, and I'm asking you to pray with us for a minute. We're not looking for a long, drawn-out service. We're looking to do whatever the pastors want to do from here. I'm asking you to pray for your house, that if you have your wife, if you have your son or daughter with you, that you lay hands on them, and as the fire of God is entering you and holiness is entering you, that it would flow into them. That each of us would take responsibility for what we are called to and what has been given to us. Yeah. And that God might answer us with holiness from heaven. Stand to your feet. Sometimes praying for the fire of God can seem like a fearful thing.